From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Revenge is a dish best served cold, but when Julian Slowick, the renowned chef played by Rafe Fiennes in the menu, decides to exact revenge on both his acolytes and critics, he turns up the heat in entirely unexpected ways. Seth Reese and Will Tracy are the screenwriters behind the new culinary satire. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, how are you? Hello. Thanks for having us. Before we dig in, so to speak, let's meet Chef Julian. Here's a clip of him introducing the diners to his restaurant. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Hawthorne. I'm Julian Slowick, and tonight it'll be our pleasure to feed you. The curtain rises. Over the next few hours, you will ingest fat, Salt, sugar, protein, bacteria, fungi, various plants and animals, and at times entire ecosystems. But I have to beg of you one thing. It's just one. Do not eat. Taste. Savor. Relish. Consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful, but do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. So what prompted the two of you to write a screenplay about class disparity based in a 12-person destination restaurant? I think probably we weren't thinking necessarily about even the theme of class disparity uh, at the outset, I think we just thought that that would be a very useful and effective way to structure a film like a tasting menu so that we actually use title cards throughout the film for the courses and you're kind of brought through the movie like a menu, course one, course two, all the way through to dessert. And it felt as though that would be a, a, a way to take a... I guess a satirical precinct or location, this dining room, this sort of very contained space. And with each course, you can kind of ratchet up the tension and also kind of ratchet up the comic surprise because each course is sort of reacting to the last course. And then quite naturally, I think, through the characters that we populated that room with, some of those themes of class and consumerism and art and privilege made their way in because it's, you know, it's just a very high-priced room. Obviously, the people who go to this restaurant, they would have to be rich. But I think what Will and I were very interested in is not so much tearing down the rich, but just sort of tearing down the concept of entitlement. And in our society, you know, the endless consumption of content. I think we, as a society, consume and consume and consume and consume and we inhale and consume, and we don't really take the time to think about who is providing us the content that we're consuming. But then on the flip side, I think Will and I also wanted to sort of talk about the people who are providing that content, especially in terms of the chef, that this is his vocation. This is what he's chosen to do. So you're certainly gonna ultimately serve people who are not going to appreciate your content as much as you would like them to appreciate that. 
but they all sort of feed into each other and need each other in this sort of symbiotic relationship that's ultimately unhealthy and is never ending. Clearly, the two of you have been exposed to these types of multi-course, sometimes endless meals. Were there any in particular that you based the menu on? Absolutely. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, we, we may maybe have not been to as many as you'd think, but um, I think the, the, a few experiences have been pretty memorable for us. There was a, a, a restaurant on a kind of a, an island that I went to when I was on my honeymoon in, in Norway with my wife, and there's a kind of a seafood restaurant on an island that you have to take a boat to. And so it made me feel quite claustrophobic to be stuck on an island in, in, uh, in the middle of the ocean in, in, in Norway for four hours. And that just seemed like a good location for a story. But uh, that restaurant was not of the kind of modernist exclusivity that you see in the film. For that type of restaurant, I think, you know, some obvious but still very vivid examples would be places like Alinea, uh, Noma, El Bui. But we also wanted to kind of take the modernist tasting menu experience, highly foraged, highly local, highly avant-garde food of those restaurants and kind of find, not copy them so much, but kind of try to create our own unique culture within this restaurant and try to create a chef who didn't really feel like Adria or Ackett's or, or Rene Redzepi, but really felt like a very specific and new creation. You might think that Will and I think these places are, I want to say bull and then a swear word, but I won't do that. Um, I used to say bull. You, want, you might think that Will and I think they're bull, but actually there's an element of it that could be, but we also very much, this is written from a place of love for these places also. I mean, it's, for us, a sort of balance of the magic, 50% magic of these places and 50% the bull of these places because we have a deep amount of respect for all the chefs that Will just mentioned. And we do think they're geniuses. And, you know, especially in, in terms of Alinea, you know, Ackett says he's a storyteller and actually he, he does do it quite well. I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but... I'm curious about the the tortilla course, and <laughs> I I know that you collaborated with Dominique Crenn, who was the culinary consultant on the movie. Yes. But this idea of printing pointed illustrations on each tortilla that were extremely personal to the guest. I mean, just tell me a little bit about the conversation that the two of you had in coming up with that. Well, I, that, that is actually based on a specific thing that I saw, not in person, but, but, um, but read about. There's a, um, actually a former Microsoft executive who left Microsoft to follow his new passion, which was highly modernist molecular cuisine. His name is Nathan Meervold, and he wrote this sort of Bible on what is called modernist food. And one of his techniques that he had um, pioneered was the ability to laser print images on food surfaces. So we just kind of took that idea of like, okay, if we have this ability to print something on a tortilla, what's on there? And also, how, and how can we use that to reveal character? So right. everything that's on those tortillas for every table that you're at reveals a little bit more about that table and the people who are eating at that table than we previously knew in the film. So it's kind of a, 
I guess, a sort of stealthy way of character exposition. Right, in two ways, because it's exposition and, you know, the audience is getting exposition in terms of who the diners are, but they're also getting exposition in terms of how methodically and meticulously the chef has planned this evening. One of the things that really struck me about this um, about this movie in general, I mean, you know, I've been I've had this show called Good Food on an NPR station for more than twenty five years, and I've watched as food has gone from a completely analog experience of ingestion with tradition bound into it and ritual that's attached to a lot of tradition to becoming entertainment Mm. and how many of these, or not many, but some of these kinds of meals um, that the plot comes from are made up of rituals that can be completely hollow in the sense that they're just made up from the mind of the the chef. So, I I mean, I I just was, I thought it was just extraordinary in in that context that there's a moment where there's a big enough audience that a movie like this could be made. And I'm wondering who you see the audience as being. Well, I mean, hopefully, I I think our aim was to write a movie that um, whether you've worked in a kitchen like that, or if you're someone who loves going to restaurants like that, or if you're the world's biggest skeptic of restaurants like that, that all of those people would be able to enjoy the movie equally, and all, every, all those people would be able to see someone in the film who they relate to in some way. As Seth said, I mean, yeah, we, we both, it's both kind of a, a, uh, a love letter to that type of restaurant and also a, a, a poisoned love letter to that type of restaurant. And, you know, I've always liked this phrase, this French phrase that um, you never grow old at the dinner table. And certainly there are, <laughs> there are tasting menu experiences that are so long and punishing that you really can hear yourself growing older <laughs> while you're sitting there. So, I, I, you know, it's, so it's somewhat of a takedown of that type of restaurant while also recognizing that at their best, there is something truly transporting about that type of food that, with no shame, aspires to art. Um, and who's to say that it isn't? Do you think you'll need to start making reservations under pseudonyms at fine dining restaurants <laughs> no, now? No, 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 and I'll, and I'll answer yeah. this. I, no, I, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Nicholas Holt or Ray Fines or anyone will walk into a restaurant and they'll be seated, no problem, no problem. Will and I will be like on our Resi app uh, hoping for notifications <laughs> that like from, and like then we're just going to like, I guess we'll do the, the table for two at 10.45 p.m. Fine. <laughs> it's like we, we wrote the stupid thing so that we could get free food and I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, we are two very hungry individuals and we were just trying to write our way out of a problem and we failed. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I've seen the movie twice and oh, um, great. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I loved it. Oh, that's Thank very you. kind. 
That's Seth Reese and Will Tracy, the screenwriters of Searchlight Pictures, The Menu. Both Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy were just nominated for Golden Globe Awards for Best Actor and Best Actress. Thankfully, the film is in wide release and easier to see than nabbing a reservation at Hawthorne. Coming up, Hanukkah starts tomorrow, and one of my next guests has an idea for celebrating the miracle of oil. Beignet, anyone? That's when Good Food Continues. Welcome back to Good Food. The lead-up to most holidays requires weeks of preparation in the kitchen for a meal that typically lasts no more than 30 minutes, which is why I love Hanukkah. Spread over eight nights, there's time to settle into the season and cherish rituals while creating new ones. Many will be blending cultural heritage and family traditions as Christmas and Hanukkah overlap this year. We invited Katiana and John Hong from Yangban Society, two chefs who know a thing or two about mashups, for a discussion about creating modern holiday memories. Hi, both of you. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Oh, it's great to have you on. Um, Kat, remind us of your background, um, where you grew up, and and share how your family celebrated Hanukkah. Sure. Um, so I was born in South Korea. I was adopted um, at a very young age when I was three months old, and I grew up in upstate New York. My mom is Irish Catholic. My dad is Jewish. And so um, in our household, we celebrated pretty much all the holidays, uh, a lot of holidays. And we had a lot of, um, you know, kind of blended traditions, I would say. But when my dad's mother, uh, my grandma, Cindy, was alive, uh, particularly, is when we would really celebrate Passover and Hanukkah and, and all of the Jewish holidays. She was an excellent cook, uh, very interested in like food and art and culture. So she was always, you know, bringing things to our home and preparing dinner for us. Or sometimes we would go to her house. But she had a few things that really stood out. I loved her brisket and egg noodles, her matzo ball soup, of course. Um, I remember my dad making latkes a lot. And then she actually would do this like roast orange duckling on holidays. And I, you know, being like a younger kid at that time, wouldn't go anywhere near that one. Um, But I did love um, some of the like traditional Jewish dishes that she would make. How old is your daughter, Sia? And what traditions are you sharing with her? So our daughter, Sia, is three years old as of September Um, And traditionally, we're kind of raising her in a mixed household. She's getting a little bit of Christmas. She's getting a little bit of Hanukkah. She's getting a little bit of Lunar New Year. So for her, it's uh, pretty well-rounded. And Kat, is she using the menorah that you used from your childhood? So it's not from my childhood, but the menorah that we use is a gift from my parents. And Sia lights the menorah every year. And she likes to go around. She calls it like Hanukkah. Um, But she goes around and she's really excited to do it. Um, But then also, yeah, we have matzo ball soup at home and um, latkes and all of that. And we're a very, you know, food-focused family. So she gets excited, I think, at any time that we're doing, um, like, kind of different foods or celebratory foods. I understand that you had a taste for gefilte fish as a child. Is Sia following in your footsteps? You know what? I have not given her gefilte fish yet. Um, Maybe this year. 
but yeah, as a kid, I absolutely loved it. And I remember kind of like begging my mom for it year round. And my mother just saying like, she didn't want the smell in the house and no. So it was something that I only got at holidays that I really, really loved. So interesting. So John, are you channeling any dishes with a Korean bent from the restaurant or are you two keeping the holiday meals fairly traditional? Um, you know, I think traditionally our style of cooking is kind of mishmash. So yeah, we are kind of using a little bit of Jewish nods as well as some Korean nods, kind of uh, exemplified in our matzo ball soup, which has cat's grandma Cindy's matzo ball soup recipe with some Korean ingredients, um, hand-torn dumplings that are more traditionally Korean and a broth that's more traditionally Korean of like emulsified chicken skin and more of a ramen-y type broth. So I think we do celebrate in our style of food and how we eat at home as well as a little bit of a mishmash of uh, all of our um, cultures and backgrounds. And and how does frying um, come into the way you celebrate or indeed in the way that you'll be offering things at the restaurant? So I think this year we'll probably make a latka, um, but it will probably be a combination of the white, like Korean sweet potatoes, um, as well as potatoes shredded with some shredded onion, you know, the usual suspects, some egg, some matzo meal, but um, frying like that mixed sweet potato or gogoma um, latka. And then also, I mean, we currently have on the menu right now, which is super fun, is our fried tater tots that we serve in a uh, garlic dill butter. Um, and then they're also served with a side of applesauce and whipped creme fraiche. Sounds good. Well, thank you, both of you. That was so kind of you to um, take time away from your work to come talk to me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Of course, it's our pleasure. That was Katiana and John Hong. Together, they are chef partners at Yangban Society, a Korean-American deli and super mini-mart in the Arts District of Los Angeles. We've been discussing traditional, modern, and combined holiday traditions. Michael Twitty is an African-American Jewish writer culinary historian and educator. He's the author of The Cooking Gene, published by HarperCollins Amistad, which won the 2018 James Beard Foundation Book Award for Book of the Year, as well as the category for writing. He's a deep thinker who shares his intersectional identity with us to learn about himself and to teach us. His latest book is Kosher Soul. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Nice to talk to you again. It's great to talk to you. I feel like this new book in its own way is almost Talmudic. I've heard that from other people and it's both like humbling and like really exciting to hear. So the premise of this work is not about who makes the food, but how the food makes the people. Can you elaborate on that idea a little bit? Sure. I mean, what does it mean when you make Jewish food. It means that if you are doing it in the spirit of the tradition, it's part of the idea of Hidor Mitzvah, which means to make the honoring of the commandments, the rules, the laws, more beautiful, more enjoyable, more exciting, more whatever. If I am making a table of, of treats for a holiday and they include kasha varnishkas and they include collard greens and they include other things, I'm curating my life. 
I'm letting the table speak for me. And I find that in these travels through Black Jewish Venn diagram history, cultural history, culinary history, you find a lot of examples of a fusion of things being together on the same table, of inspiration, of dialogue. And that's really what I mean. I was asked the question the other day ago, what's a Black Jewish food tradition? And I said, I'll let you know in 100 years. <laughs> because there have been some, and there certainly are some that we're, we're documenting. But I think that the other part of it is in a American, I mean, North and South America context, um, we have so much to learn and so much to document. And I don't really feel there's a need to put a one label on that. I think it's just a, it's a, it's a braid of influences that makes kosher soul possible. What do you always make for Hanukkah? What's one Hanukkah dish you always make? Beignets. Ooh, love that. Yeah, I don't do sufganyo. I do beignets. I do the traditional, you know, regular flour and powdered sugar beignets. And I do puff puff, which is the West African forerunner or cousin to the beignet, I should say. And, you know, sufganyo, maybe, you know, buy them. But of course, when I went to Israel, I found that Sufganyot are not what we think they are. They're not just the one little cherry, you know, jelly donut that you get at the the kosher market or the or the or the or the bakery that makes them once a year. They're so diverse. They can be virtually anything you want. So I'm a little bit intimidated by that. So I'd rather go with it, just cut the dough, fry it, and sugar it up, than make these beautiful, elaborate donuts and have the whole house smell like frying things for forever. Thank you so much, Michael. No, thank you. This is it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Michael Twitty is the author of several books, including The Cooking Gene. His latest, Kosher Soul, considers the marriage of two distinctive culinary cultures, the foods and traditions of the African Atlantic and the global Jewish diaspora. It's a powerful read. While we're on this subject of blended traditions, it seems fitting that my Hanukkah inspiration this year comes from a cookbook about Amish soul food. Last week, we heard from chef Chris Scott, who coined the term Amish soul food to describe his personal cooking style as a black chef who grew up in Amish country. As I was thumbing through his cookbook homage, I noticed a recipe for waffled potatoes, and I thought, hmm, maybe I'll do that instead of traditional latkes this year. I mean... People would always come to my restaurant and they would always ask for chicken and waffles. And if you read deeper into that one particular chapter or, the, or, or that recipe, chicken and waffles is not my thing. You know, so whenever they would come out, I would give them my version of chicken and waffles, which certainly wasn't what they were expecting. But it would be delicious nonetheless. Describe it for us. So I would do a potato waffle. You know, and in that you you would have your onion, you would have your herb. It would be almost very similar to the lack of flavors that that you're referring to. But rather than giving chicken parts, you know, fried chicken wing, thigh, breast, wh- what have you, I would do the gizzards. I would do deep fried chicken liver, deep fried hearts, um, the giblets. I would take the neck bone and kind of do all that because growing up when Nana would make her gravy, you know, those things were like gold to us. Like we always wanted to to have the neck bone. We wanted the heart. We wanted, you know, the the chicken livers and 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 to be able to eat those. So 
having them crispy fried on top of that waffle. And then you take, uh, you can take syrup if, if you want, but in that, in that recipe, I, I, I make a molasses made out of, out, out of yams, you know, and just really re- reduce that down. So you get your, you have your chicken and waffles, but it's certainly not the chicken and waffles that you're expecting. When we're making the um, the waffled potatoes, can you describe how we're doing it? Are we just um, do we have to add some kind of of binder or dredge before we put it in the waffle iron? No, I basically I I take the potato and I shred that on a box grater, peeled, shred it, and then squeeze out any excess liquid from that. Um, I take an onion and puree that in the Roboku or the Cuisinart or the, or the food processor. And then I combine the two. Uh, you can add an egg. You can add some flour, not too much. Um, and then herbs, if you want to do that. And then from there, you, then you can put that directly in into your waffle maker. Oh, love it. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Chef Chris Scott. He's the owner of Butterfunk Biscuit Company in New York. His cookbook is Homage, Recipes from an Amish Soul Food Kitchen. And yes, we have a recipe for his waffled potatoes on our website. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. And if you follow us on Instagram at kcrwgoodfood, you'll see a video of me making Chris's waffled latkes. Check it out. And if you try your own at home, make sure to tag us in the video so I can see your version too. In a minute, Christmas comes at the tail end of Hanukkah this year. And in Los Angeles, that means tamales are nigh. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Christmas in L.A. means tamal season. If you drive past Cinco Puntos or Tamales Lilianas on Christmas Eve, you will see a queue of hungry folks waiting for a dozen or more of their favorite flavors, like the red stained tamal rojo or chicken and salsa verde. For other families, tamal season means a tamalada, where friends and family gather to make their own tamales. For culinary anthropologist Claudia Serrato, the tamalada is a yearly ritual. Claudia studies North and Mesoamerican foodways, and food is her way to revitalize ancestral memories. I asked her to start us off with a Tamal History 101. Tamales have been around for a very long time, um, and they're very significant for Mesoamerican peoples. It has been shown that the actual, you know, before tamales were tamales, uh, the masa, which comes from corn, actually has been dated to 9,000 years ago. So that means that the teocintle, which is the wild version of what has become the domesticated corn, which eventually becomes the masa that is used for the tamal making, in indigenous terms, it has existed since time immemorial. That means that there is no true memory of its origins. However, you know, archaeologists are doing their best to figure this out. So many indigenous pueblos um, throughout Mexico 
pretty much came up with their own style of tamales. Um, in Michoacán, they're carcurundas. They take on more of a triangle shape. Um, in Mexico City, they are more of the original style of tamal or tamali, which is uh, a Nahuatl word meaning wrapped or wrapped food. You know, so yes, these tamales definitely predate the tortilla. There's always an idea that, oh, the tortilla came first. Uh, but the truth is, no, uh, tamales did. Do they know if they reference any other main material besides corn, or does the word presuppose it will always be corn? You know, it's really interesting because not all masa comes from corn. Uh, masa has also been made with uh, different um, amaranths. So there is a black amaranth, there's red amaranth, there's a white amaranth. And that was another grain uh, that was used um, in the preparation of masa. We also see the same thing um, like in South America with the use of quinoa as the masa for the tamales of those regions. In the Mesoamerican world, do these amaranth masas still live on today? You know, amaranth is actually remembered and it is utilized and integrated in the making of masa. Now, because this particular grain was deemed unusable by the Spanish uh, during the time of conquest, many folks forgot about the combination and how nutritionally dense it would make the masa of corn. So I myself have learned to bring it back into my tamal making, into my tamal processes. And what I have found that it actually fluffs the masa. Um, so it creates little pockets of air. And so it allows for there to be um, a fluff as you, you know, cut right into the masa or as you put the masa up into your mouth. It's, it's quite wonderful. God, I love that. What do we know about how they were made in Mesoamerican times um, in terms of the process and were people already filling them or or was it more like a, a dough? So in pre-colonial times, um, the tamales were prepared all year long and they were not made just as pockets of dough. They were actually filled. Uh, they were usually uh, seasonal fillings. So even though, say, it was the springtime, for those that were by the coast, you would see more fish. For folks that were up in the hillside, you would see more rabbit or you would see more deer. Um, and for folks that had no access to large bodies of water, then you would see the tamales filled with different plant relatives. Um, tequesquite was also used as a riser. Tequesquite is a mineral um, that comes from the lakes. And um, it's, it's very rocky and very salty. And so tamales also of pre-colonial times did not uh, contain any lard as we know them today. So the texture was a little a lot more coarse and dense. So tamales, aside from, um, you know, fish, aside from um, deer and rabbit um, and, and other wild plants, uh, you also found turkey in them, iguana, even frogs, birds, uh, shrimp, uh, cricket tamales, larva tamales. Uh, and then there was avocados, bean, tomato, chilies. And my ultimate favorite, which are cacao, 
um, and, a, and fruit and vegetables. So tamales weren't limited to like the four or five tamales like we know them today. And not just that, but also to the method of pre- preparing them. Some were actually placed on top of a comal, uh, just like you would a tortilla. You just keep flipping them and turning them. So those would be considered like comal tamales. And then you also had some that were buried underground. Uh, so those were like deep steamed, as we see barbacoa being deep steamed today. Uh, there was also uh, other technologies that were made so that you can place the tamales inside over a large burning fire. So they would be tamales al vapor uh, that were cooked over, um, you know, what we would call wood stove today. And so there was a lot of variety. There was a lot of diversity. Okay. So now let's, let's talk about modern day and people eating and making tamales. Um, it seems like tamales have been pushed into this one time of year. Really interestingly, tamales are accessible and available year-round. We see this throughout Mexico. We see this throughout Central America, South America. But in the United States, it seems to be a food that most crave during uh, the fall equinox or Christmas time. It's really a time when family is able to come together. And so in my home... This has been since since I was born. So for 45 years now, my family continues to honor the tradition of the tamalada. You know, our tamaladas are usually large. There's usually about, I mean, I want to say about 20 of us uh, that are doing this work. So, you know, you have the, the grinders, you have the maciendos. What is the maciendos? So, or the the folks that are actually preparing the masa. So you're maciandolo. You're mixing it. Um, I don't like to use a mixer for my masa. For me, it takes away that cultural connection. I'm really used to digging my hands in there, mixing it. It's a lot of arm work. Um, And doing that work, it also reminds me of my grandmother. And this is a little emotional for me, but I remember her arms, you know, and I remember looking at them as a child and just mixing the masa. And it almost felt like it was like a never ending story. I was always so impatient, but patiently waiting for her to stop Um, because she said it was something you just had to keep on doing until the masa told you it was ready. You know, so that way it goes on to the next stage, which is, you know, to be able to begin spreading um, the masa onto the oha. And so... Um, you know, it's labor intensive, but like that's the point to making the tamales because it creates unity. It brings us together. And not just that, but it asserts, you know, who we are as indigenous Mesoamerican peoples still thriving um, and still surviving in such a beautiful way as we are today. Um, I know you 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 make these blue corn and bison tamales. Yes. Um do you make more than one kind? So you do blue corn and then do you do another kind of masa? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, so there are multiple tamales that I myself like to make um, and my family likes to make. Uh, we use, you know, anywhere from white corn, red corn, blue corn. Um, sometimes some are made with rajas, which is using uh, chile poblano. Uh, those are like one of my favorites. But the ones that have actually become what I want to say my signature tamales have been my uh, bison blue corn. And I specifically use the blue corn because it is one of the corns that has not been 
genetically modified as many other corns have. I also like this corn because it really complements the braised bison. Now, after all of this work, yeah. <laughs> um, when do people like sit down and actually eat it? Is it are you eating it right after the tamolada? Describe the um, moment when you finally are, maybe you've taken a shower, changed your clothes, but you've taken a breath and you taste the results of all this labor. So usually immediately following a tamalada, there are two sessions where one sits down to eat. The first is the taster. So that is when there is a round of tamales, which is usually the first batch where those that are in the kitchen get to taste. We're, you know, still covered in masa, still with our dirty aprons. We take our first bite. Now, this first bite um, is a slow bite because the tamale is very hot. The feeling I'm always looking for is that feeling that just makes me just go, oh my goodness, you know, it's a nod, it's a smile. And it's at that point that you freshen up, do what you got to do. And pretty much the tamales are eaten all throughout the day. Um, but at the end of our, tama, our tamalada, our end of our tamal experience, we always usually save the sweet tamales for last. That was Claudia Serrato. She's a culinary anthropologist who studies the foods and food ways of Mesoamerica. You can also hear Claudia on Good Foods Masa episode. Have you heard it yet? It's really an amazing show, an hour-long exploration of masa, the nixtamalized corn that makes tamales, tortillas, tlayudas, tetelas, and so many more incredibly delicious items. You can find it at KCRW dot com slash good food. And if you're looking to buy tamales for the holidays here in LA, check out the extensive tamal roundup that I did for KCRW's show Press Play. You can find it on our Instagram page. Follow us at KCRW Good Food. is a whole other skill set in the kitchen, where precision rules over improvisation. French pastry brings next-level technique and engineering, but French home cooks don't bother to compete with pastry chefs whose work is in pastry shops everywhere. They approach making cakes at home with a kind of simple panache seen in the way they put an outfit together. Food writer Alexandra Crapanzano shares this surprisingly practical approach to throwing a cake together at home. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Evan. It's such a lovely, sweet book. <laughs> Thank you. So talk a little bit about that, that approach that French home cooks have. You know, every time we hear the word French put in front of something, we always assume it's going to be a little bit more difficult and require more technique than we might have. Absolutely. You know, it really is exactly what you said. The French, I think, are wise enough to leave complicated cooking to the pros. And that's true in savory food and in baking. And it's impossible to compete with them if you're a home cook. And once you decide you're not going to do it, there's actually this incredibly liberating feel, I think, that allows you to um, to cook far more casually and simply and to, and to really gain confidence 
in that ability and using great ingredients and recipes that are tried and true. I grew up in France. I grew up in Paris and um, for much of my life. And what I loved was how recipes like a yogurt cake or a very simple pound cake are taught in kindergarten. And they're so simple. You need a bowl and a whisk and a, and a little cup of yogurt. And that becomes the measuring cup once you once you add the yogurt. It, it couldn't be simpler. And then you take that recipe and you have it for the rest of your life. And so you can add anything you want. You can add, you know, strawberries if it's strawberry season. You can add cherries. You can add chocolate chips. You can, you can add rose water or orange blossom water or rum or bourbon. That's the playful part. It becomes something that is tried and true that you have for the rest of your life. Is there a preference when making these home cakes um, for a certain kind of texture, are are most of these cakes tender crumbed, more sturdy crumbed? They all, I, you know, tender crumbed. And one of the things I discovered, you know, in, in really focusing on writing this book entirely in the States with American flour and American ingredients, is I paid a lot of attention to what the differences were between, you know, French flour and American flour. And, you know, you go into a good supermarket in Paris or anywhere in France, and you'll see many, many different kinds of flours, um, far more than we have here. But the one that that is kind of their equivalent of an all-purpose that they bake with does more closely, I would say, resemble our cake flour. And so I often call for that in this book because I do feel it it does offer a slightly more delicate crumb. Some of them are surprisingly sturdy cakes because they're well-structured, but I would say all of them have a delicate crumb. Many of them last many days. The French are incredibly practical. It's something I, I don't think we think about when we think about the French because they have such a, a love of life and of art and of fashion and, and all of these things. But in fact, I think one of the reasons that they can cook at home you know, every day so well is in fact that they are practical. So, you know, a cake might be made on a Friday for the weekend and and it will certainly carry through Sunday if it's not gobbled up sooner. I suppose this time of year we um, we expect to see Bouche de Noel's on a sideboard or as part of a dessert buffet. Can you talk about layering the flavors of the Genoise or sponge with buttercream and what some of your favorite combinations are? Absolutely. So the Bouche de Noël is, of course, the classic Christmas cake um, in America, sometimes called a Yule log. It is something that the French often do buy at a patisserie. And in fact, kind of come this time of year, you will see the great pastry makers in France kind of showcasing what their flavors are going to be for Christmas and kind of competing on that. And there's lots of Instagram posting about Bouche de Noël. They're, they're a great favorite. And really, the French only eat Bouche de Noël at Christmas time. They really, they're, they're very, very ritualistic. And part of the great pleasure, I think, is that you, you know, you taste a cake once a year and you spend the rest of the year kind of dreaming of it. It adds to the pleasure. Um, but the, but the Genoise, the, the Bouche de Noël is actually a very, very simple cake. It's the decorations that if you go over the top, those, those take some time. But really, it is a very simple Genoise, which is a sponge cake. And those are, you know, people assume that a Genoise is hard, but they're in fact incredibly easy. They're meant to be dry and they're meant to absorb a tremendous amount 
of liquid. Um, in this case, a soaking syrup that is as simple as a, you know, a simple syrup that you might use in making a cocktail, often infused with a liqueur. And you brush that onto, you cook the genoise in a sheet pan, you brush it with soaking syrup, and then you have all of these incredible options depending on how much time you have and how much time you want to put into it and how experienced you are. You can certainly fill it with buttercream and roll it up and coat it in a beautiful ganache and run the tines of a fork down it so that it looks like the bark of a tree. That is absolutely the classic approach. You usually see that in chocolate. You see that in mocha. Um, you often see that in chestnut. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, pear, pear and par William, again, the French do love pears, really tremendous. But more recently, I've started to see, you know, a lot of yuzu, for example, uh, is being used. There are a lot more tropical flavors. So maybe you'll see a coconut uh, genoise and a yuzu buttercream. And if you don't, you know, if you don't have time to make a buttercream or don't want to, and, and those actually are a little bit labor intensive, you can simply make a, a, a creme chantilly and add the flavor to that and and roll that up into the bouche de Noël. So one of the things I wanted to do with this with with this book is really to give options so that people, you know, they can take a recipe to an extreme, or they can make it quite simple and quick, depending really on time and ability and, and desire. This is the time of year where we also um, are starting to entertain a bit more, maybe a bit more mm -hmm. than in the last couple of years. And um, boards seem to be on everybody's mind. Personally, I prefer just a regular charcuterie board <laughs> rather yes. than a butter board. But you have some savory options that would be sort of a lovely accompaniment to um, a nice charcuterie display. So these, so I, I include a chapter on savory cakes. You know, they're cakes, obviously, they don't have sugar in them. They're all made in a nine by five loaf pan. And they are usually served with an aperitif or a cocktail before dinner. But they're also fantastically practical because they can go in lunch boxes and tote bags. They can go in on picnics. They can go in the train and the car. They're kind of everything that you love about a great sandwich rolled into the batter. These are batters that will incorporate, for example, French ham and Gruyere and maybe some leeks and will bake into a, a moist, flavorful, savory loaf that can then be cut into thick slices. And those slices can just be cut into squares. And those squares can be served with a glass of wine or anything you happen to be having before dinner. So they're, they, they really are meant to be just a, a, almost a tiny little taste. Also, very practically, what you can do is the next day, you can put them in a lunchbox or you can have them with a salad for a late dinner or lunch. Uh, even by the third or fourth day, they can be toasted and brushed with a little bit of olive oil or, you know, coated with a tiny bit of butter and, and are delicious. Well, thank you so much, Alexandra. It's a very sweet book with a lot of ideas. Oh, I'm so glad. It was a pleasure to be on. That was Alexandra Crapanzano, recipient of the James Beard MFK Fisher Distinguished Writing Award and a food columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Her latest book is Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. We have a recipe for her mocha bouche de Noël at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, Elf Cafe and Echo Park is back with a new look and a new menu we hear the story of their 16-year journey when Good Food continues.
I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. When Scott Zweisen officially opened the Elf Cafe in Echo Park with his bandmates in 2006, they weren't expecting such rave reviews. As Scott dubbed the project their second album, he continued to pour creative energy into the restaurant for the next 16 years. But Elf fell victim to the pandemic and city ordinances. Now Elf is being resurrected with a new look and menu. Scott Zweisen and Elf Cafe are the subject of this week's In the Weeds. Uh, my name is Scott Zweisen. I am the founder and along with my bandmates, uh, Astara Callis and Evan Harris, the partner uh, in Elf Cafe in Echo Park. In the early 2000s, I was uh, playing in a rock band. I had become a raw vegan and I spent a great deal of, of my time during the days making, uh, uh, prepping raw food to eat uh, for myself, soaking, sprouting, chopping, constantly working in my own kitchen. And my, my former partner at the time and I said to ourselves, wouldn't it be amazing if we could just go to any number of small health food stores and get prepackaged raw food? A light bulb went off in our heads at that point, and we started making our own prepackaged raw food. We went around to some stores, and they all were excited about carrying our products. Naturally, what followed is that we needed a commercial space to create the products, and uh, this would have been 2004. Echo Park was a little bit different than it is today. We found a place, a cafe, that had been sitting derelict for a couple of years with a for sale sign in the window for as long as I could remember seeing it. We made a phone call in a leap of faith. We had no money and no resources, but somehow uh, within a couple of weeks, we had the keys to the place. And between 2004 and 2006, we manufactured raw food out of that kitchen. In 2006, I remember just becoming quite bored with doing the same raw nori rolls over and over again. And I said to myself, I already have a cafe space that's been an interest of mine from as long as I could remember. And at that point, my bandmates jumped in with me and we opened Elf. In 2006, our block was was very, very different. It was mostly boarded up. It was considered by the city and the state to be an enterprise zone, which means a blighted block. So when, when we went in, we were a bit of a lonely outpost. You know, we had the neighbors on either side of us. Uh, there, there was an old theater completely boarded up and many of the storefronts up and down our block were also boarded up. So. Honestly, we didn't know what to expect. I, I, built, I built the place by hand. Uh, we had no budget. So a lot of the wood I was using was sort of recycled from other projects. My friends helped me uh, build the bar and you know we tiled the kitchen. And when we opened, we, we didn't have a hood. <laughs> so we basically decided why don't we just use hot plates in a convection oven? And we sort of put our heads together and created this menu that we could execute with very, very limited uh, resources and, and limited abilities. 
And naively, I thought that people would just kind of wander in. I myself might uh, wait on them at the counter and then turn around and make food, you know, for them and bring it out. Uh, what happened was almost from the very first day, a flood of people came in and sat down <laughs> at the tables and it was far too busy for me to wait on people and then make the food at the same time. And it sort of became um, a fine, casual restaurant where people, you know, we, we immediately had to add a wait staff on. And I was utterly shocked by the reception to the neighborhood, almost as if a lot of people had been waiting for just something like this. We certainly weren't the first restaurant in the neighborhood, but I think we were the first vegetarian restaurant in the neighborhood. And there were a lot of people that were certainly excited about that. And oddly enough, what I feel um, most defines Elf is our kale salad, as simple as it was. I haven't seen a kale salad on a menu in a restaurant earlier than Elf's anywhere, unless I'm very much mistaken. And when we first uh, opened with a raw kale salad on the menu, people were, some of them were outright aghast and would say, you can't eat raw kale. It's a garnish. It's not done. It's not good for you. But then it became, as we all know, it became sort of a thing, a craze. The biggest challenges we faced during the pandemic were the fact that ELF is very much about the guest experience inside the space. And when we were not allowed to have guests visiting the space, people were very game uh, for ordering to go. And that, and that was wonderful and it supported us for a while. But ultimately, the challenge was that we weren't able to offer the thing that we were most known for to our community. And as it were, the double-edged sword of the pandemic gave us an opportunity to take a little bit of a break. For 14 years, it was a constant hamster wheel of, of frenetic activity like most restaurants are. Having a break was an opportunity to like be, slow down for a second, to become friends again, to talk and to, to think and to read and to reassess where we were as people, as cooks, as a restaurant. And, and a part of that break exposed me to the idea of regenerative farming and these amazing um, initiatives that people are taking uh, around the world, but uh, especially here in California on a, on a very local level. And it's given, given us an idea that we can change the menu to be able to support the work of small independent fishermen or farmers even that have uh, ruminant grazing. So you, you may see certain items show up on the menu that we haven't had in the past. And, you know, we're, we're certainly not going to be a steakhouse by any stretch of the imagination, but we may have a menu that's reflective of the interest in regenerative agriculture and responsible aquaculture that um, is kind of driving our interest and passion right now. Certainly there's there's some expectation from certain folks that, that it might continue to be the elf as it was, but I think there's a lot of anticipation and a lot of excitement for elf as it uh, as it will be, as it will embrace the future it's meant to have. 
that was Scott Zweizen, who, along with Astara Kalas and Evan Haros, just reopened Elf Cafe in Echo Park. The restaurant is open for dinner service this weekend. It's walk-ins only from 6 to 11 Saturday and Sunday night. Then they will close for the holidays and reopen with regular hours in January. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts on Stitcher or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kundarajan, and Gary Messiha. Still looking for that last minute gift? We have some ideas for you. This week, we released our year-end best of lists. And instead of the usual book roundup, we decided to spotlight our favorite pantry items. I selected some of my all-time kitchen stalwarts and some newer condiments that have become surprise hits in my weekly repertoire. You can find all our best of lists across music and culture at kcrw.com slash best of. I'm Evan Kleiman. I wish you so many happy holidays from all of us at Good Food.